Alliance family, we just want to thank you for your giving towards the year-end offering. Your generosity and your prayers have allowed us to go to the most remote villages, the most remote places in Central Asia, where there's never been access to the gospel before. But because of your partnership with us, we've been able to provide medicine and educational opportunities. There's now been gospel access in some of these places. The church is being established. Discipleship is happening. And now the Bible's being translated in the heart languages of some of these people. Please join us. It's not too late to be part of the year-end offering. All of Jesus for all the world takes all of us. Hello, Common Ground family. It seems like we're close-knit today, just a few of us, but... Nonetheless, we can still worship together and praise the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so if you would, please stand with me and let's sing. Mark the herald angels sing Glory to the newborn King Peace on earth and mercy mild God and sinners reconciled i 
as a man. Holy God, but also holy man. God, we praise you. We're so lucky that we have you in our lives today. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Common ground, you may be seated. Good morning, Common Ground. Thanks for coming here on the day after Christmas or Extra Xmas or whatever we call this uh, particular day. Boxing Day. Thanks from the Canadian and uh, nerd faction there for bringing us in on that. Hi, my name's Nick. I think everybody that's here knows that because I pretty much know everybody that's here from what I can uh, see looking around. Um, I have a few announcements to bring to you this morning. The first one has a lot of exclamation points in print, so we want it to have exclamation points points in your heart too. And that is that uh, after church service on January 9th, that Sunday, we are going to be having a business meeting. Yay! Family meeting is what I like to call them, our annual meeting. And it's really a good thing to come to because you get a lot of information. You're going to hear some things about what's been happening and also what's going to be happening. Ooh, I like that, that little echo there. And uh, that's good because, you know, come and get some information because if you don't, you'll just be misinformed. And uh, that's never a good place to be. And then on January 15th and 16th, we're going to have an overnight kind of a workday retreat at Camp Halawasa on their property down near Hot Springs. And we would love to just get a whole bunch of people from Common Ground to come down there. They're going to feed us lunch, which is awesome. And then we're going to work on things. We're going to build shells. We're going to paint stuff. We're going to cut trees down, be lumberjacks, and clear out some brush and, and that kind of thing, just to make the camp a whole lot more nicer for this coming camping season. So plan to be there by 9.30 in the morning. Uh, you might want to come here and carpool down at 8 o'clock or drive yourself down depending on uh, what you're doing. Do we have a uh, clipboard going around? There's a clipboard somewhere. And, uh, yeah, as, as that comes around, just indicate when you're going to be there so that we know what kind of meals to prepare for everybody. And then the other thing that's pretty exciting is uh, I almost tripped over one coming up here. We have all these little gnomes in their stocking caps here today. They're just cuter than anything. And uh, we, we have a space now right off at Darg Hall there that we're going to turn into a nursery so that parents can step out if, if they're getting a little unruly and embarrassing their kids and, uh, and go into the nursery. We're going to have a TV screen in there so that parents can watch the service while they don't have to be completely isolated away from us. Uh, there's a lot of work to be done, like putting in a TV screen, uh, putting in some furniture, painting it to make it nice and nursery-like and things like that. And uh, so we are uh, raising funds for that. If you would like to give a gift to that, you can do that with our Easy Tithe. It has its own designated spot to do that. Or you can just designate on a check for the nursery. Or you can just come and give me or Evan or somebody associated with the nursery uh, cash. And we'll make sure that it goes to the nursery and uh, help things out. Uh, or the worst, yeah, you know, you know. So anyway, just something we want to do to uh, make it all the more nicer for our growing families in our growing family here. And then we also have a sign-up for RAP. RAP is a ministry that we can be associated with here at Common Ground to help families of fostering and adoptive uh, situations because what they do is frankly exhausting, and uh, they need people to come alongside and help them out with that. 
So we have a sign-up for that, and uh, please indicate when you sign up which which W, R, A, or P you're going to, or all of them, you're going to be a part of, and we will have training for everybody involved in that. Now, one thing I don't have on here, but I just want to take some time to talk about it real quickly, is a perspectives course that's being held jan starting January 9th. Uh, I will be sending out an email on that uh, to give you some more information. But if you would really like to, uh, you know, end of the year is really a good time to give a gift to the Lord. You can give the gift of yourself by taking a perspectives course because it will bring return and dividend to God's kingdom and to you as you do that. And so just kind of keep your ears open for this course and what it's about and how you can be involved in that. If you want more information on what's going on, just go to commonground.org and you can hit the updates and events tab and it will lead you to that. But now we're going to step into our uh, awkward social interaction time because we call it awkward because, well, I'm just looking out here and all the awkward people came today. So uh, I don't even have to give you instructions on what to do other than um, give your explanation for what you think Boxing Day means, okay? And uh, see who knows what it is and who doesn't. Up and go. Welcome, everybody, and have a great day.
All right, Common Ground, let's continue in worship.
Nothing worth more that will ever come close. No thing can compare. You're our living hope. Your presence. I've tasted and seen. Of the sweetest of loves, where my heart becomes free and my shame is undone. In Your presence, Lord. Holy Spirit, you can come here. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere. Your glory, God, is what our hearts long for, to be overcome by your presence, Lord. In your presence, nothing worth more that will ever come close no thing can compare you're our living home in your presence Lord I've tasted and seen Sweetest of loves, where my heart becomes free, and my shame is undone, done. In your presence, Lord. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place. The atmosphere 
let us become more aware of your presence. Let us experience the glory of your goodness. Let us become more aware of your presence. Let us experience the glory of your goodness. Let us become more aware of your presence. Let us experience the glory of your goodness. Let us become more aware of your presence. Let us experience the glory of your part of the service is our time of giving, and it is a time of giving of ourselves and just really reflecting on ways in which we can give back to God's kingdom. Uh, one thing that was brought up this morning was um, during the announcements, the, those rap teams, and you know, if that's something that's on your heart of seeking ways in which that you can serve, that's a real tangible way in which you can give back to God's people and really just show the love of Jesus by wrapping around those people and, you know, showing them love, showing them encouragement, gifts, and really just being there for them. And I think that's a really great way to really just be like Jesus, um, to love those around you. So I just uh, ask as you're giving and as you're singing this next song with me that, um, and singing this next song with others that you'd really just pray on that. in the 
Because you're within the word and you inhabit it and you wrote it. So we thank you for that. Pray this in your holy name. Amen. Yesterday we celebrated the day that the God of heaven, the one who created all things, took on flesh and became Emmanuel. It wasn't that we weren't with God and he wasn't with us, but he came in that special form, taking on the physical flesh of man because we needed a savior. And that reminded me of just the four things that we, as the Christian Missionary Alliance, see Christ as, is our Savior. And the very fact that we say that indicates that's because we need a Savior. One of the songs we sang talked about that we, want, that we are uh, no guilt in life, no fear in death. That's because we have a Savior. That our sins have been dealt with, taken away. So I thought today what we would do is just kind of focus our prayer, our attention on the four things that uh, the Christian Missionary Alliance holds up as the four points of who Christ is. First, he is our Savior. And so what I'd like you to do is to think just for a moment, not only about your own life, but those who are around you. Who is it who needs to come to faith in Christ? Maybe they're religious, maybe they're not. Maybe they are like Thomas and they absolutely refuse to accept Christ uh, until they saw him. But then they fell down and worshiped him as God. Who is it in your life that you want to maybe share the gospel with this year, this coming year? Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. And just silently, if you would pray for those people that God puts on your heart, that maybe he will draw you into a special time with them where you will be able to share the gospel with those people. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, we do recognize that you sent your son, Jesus, to come into this world to save us from sin. We recognize that we each individually had to come to a point where we trusted in what Jesus did for us on the cross when he took the penalty for our sin. And I pray, Father, that you would put on our hearts those people that you want us to share the gospel with even this next year. Father, we pray for the opportunity to to be able to share with them the truths that have meant so much in our life. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. And then we have, we believe in Jesus as our sanctifier, which is just a big word for the one who makes us like Jesus. And we were able to see Jesus throughout his life because of the Gospels, and we understand how he relates to people and the love that he has for one another. And as our sanctifier, we want to have him make us to become more and more like Jesus. And one of the benefits of accepting Christ as your Savior, as we pray, the Holy Spirit comes into us and dwells within us. And that's what's so different about our time. Because when we trusted in Christ, we have the Spirit of God come and dwell within us reviving us, changing us, sanctifying us to become more like Jesus. I'd like to go back to prayer again, and and this time we're going to just pray and ask the Lord to show us some areas that he wants to work on this year to make us to become more and more like Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we have gathered together, we recognize Emmanuel. We recognize that Jesus came in the flesh, and now we understand, we know how you love people, how you desire righteousness, how you want us to grow. Would you point out to us now how you want us to grow? Maybe some specific things we need to give up, maybe some specific things we need to take on. Father, Help us to see Jesus as our sanctifier, the one who makes us to become all that he has desired us to be. Show us now those things you want us to work. Thank you, Father. We also see Jesus as uh, our healer, And some of you may have things in your life that we don't know about, things that need healing, maybe emotional healing, maybe physical healing. It was really fun to see Charlie here uh, Christmas Eve and uh, see him walking around and talk with him. That was an indication that God is our healer and that we prayed for him. And I mean, he he was pretty bad off. And uh, so just we want to thank the Lord for healing. Let's go to the Lord and, and just remember those things. Maybe it's somebody in your family who needs healing, a parent, child. Uh, let's remember them now. 
Father, as we turn back to you and we recognize that Jesus is the one who heals us, we remember the stories of how he healed the blind and, and the lame. We even recognize that he caused people to come alive again physically. Father, we pray that you would work through um, us to be able to reach out to people who need prayer, who need to uh, be healed physically, those who need to be healed emotionally, that we would continue to pray for them, but also offer them the, the truths of your word of who Christ is, that he is our healer. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Finally, he also is our king. And in this world where things are so crazy right now, uh, in terms of governments and what they're trying to do and all of that, Jesus is the one who's going to come back and set everything straight. So let's just go to the Lord one more time and just pray for God to, to work through Jesus when he comes to set all things right. That's our hope, and that's what we're waiting for. Father, I thank you again for the fact that Jesus is not uh, is more than just our Savior and Sanctifier and our Healer. He is also our King, and we follow him. We want to um, adore him. We want to uh, bow in reverence to him. And Father, we pray that you would bring Christ back soon to, uh, to heal all of the the wrongs that are being done, to set things straight, to make things right. Father, this is our hope. This is our, our longing, that this year might be the year that Christ would return. Father, we thank you for this hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, and coming camp. He does a lot for us. Well, hey, good morning, everyone. Uh, whatever you call this day, Boxing Day, Christmas morrow, um, 364 days before Christmas, um, I still want to spend some time looking at the Christmas story today as we have been going for the last few weeks um, through a series on the promises of God leading up to Christmas and some of the prophecies, some of the images in the Old Testament that led up to Christmas. Now that it is after Christmas, I want to look at the Christmas story today, and I want to look at exactly what happened in this story. Um, and so we have some ground to cover, um, but you guys who chose not to sleep in on the day after Christmas are going to come away with a complete, full understanding of what exactly happened on Christmas today. So I'm really excited for this. We're going to cover some ground, though. So I was worried about how long this sermon was going to be, but now that I see who's here, I'm not worried at all. I can keep you guys all day. So this will be good. Um, but one of the reasons that I wanted to cover so much, and basically to look at what exactly happened in the Christmas story, is because Christmas is a real story, a story of real events that happened in a real place to real people, and that is what we base our faith off. Um, these events were not just analogous or some spiritual story, um, but that these were actually real events that took place in history that we can hold to. And when it comes to following Christ, um, there are things that we can't always see, or things that we, you know, have to have confidence in what we hope for, 
and assurance in what we don't see. But there are things in our following of Christ that we can see. Um, and Jesus, fulfilling a lot of the Old Testament prophecies and promises, is one of those things that we can see, that we can know for certain, and that we can base our faith on. And so as we're going to go through the Christmas story today, um, really that's what I hope that we're able to see, is some of these predictions um, that God in the Old Testament prophesied hundreds of years before took place on Christmas. That's something that we can hang on to, something that I think is really significant. I think it's significant because this is pretty good evidence that Jesus is who he claimed to be, right? Because hundreds of years before Jesus, there are some different guys who claimed to hear from God and who made these predictions about things that would happen. And now people do this all the time, um, but the easiest way to determine if someone's actually hearing from God or if their predictions are right is basically just to wait, right? You think this is going to happen? Okay, all right, we'll see. And the thing with the prophecies about Jesus and about Christmas is now as time passed, those things took place. Those things happened and they took place. And this, I think, is clear evidence that Jesus is who he says he is and that the Bible truly is the inspired word of God. Because as many of us know, uh, people are not good at predicting the future, are they? Uh, people like to try it. They like to do their best shot at it, um, but they don't typically do very well. Um, here are a few very famous bad predictions um, throughout the years. Now, Junius Morgan, uh, the father of J.P. Morgan, once said that electricity is just a fad. And this is because J.P. Morgan was spending all this money to wire up his house and to have Thomas Edison wire his house to make his house the first one with electricity in New York City. And his dad just poo-pooed the idea and said, what a waste of money. Electricity is a fad. We're going to be over that. Well, J.P. Morgan didn't listen to his dad, did he? And uh, his bank account did pretty well because of that. Now he owns, like, well, founded one of the biggest banks ever, J.P. Morgan Chase, right? But his dad wasn't right. Um, here's another one from Thomas Watson, the chairman of IBM in 1949. He said that I think there is a world market for maybe five computers. <laughs> pretty good prediction. Okay, here's one I want you guys to guess. Who do you think said this? 640 kilobytes ought to be enough for anyone. You knew that one? Yep. That was, what's it on there? Bill Gates said that. Okay. Do you know how many uh, kilobytes are in a gigabyte? Know that off the top? 1,048,000. Now the new iPhone has 512 gigabytes. So that's over 200 million kilobytes. So Bill wasn't right about 640, was he, right? That's a pretty rough prediction. Okay, here's a fun one. Uh, Business Week, a uh, magazine that helps you to invest in the stock market. They said on August 2nd, 1968, um, that with over four, 50 foreign cars already on sale here, the Japanese auto industry isn't likely to carve out a very large slice of the market, right? All uh, right, I think it did. You don't think it did, Lucas? <laughs> They got a huge share. We drive a Honda now. I'm sure many of you have Japanese cars as well, right? So this prediction uh, didn't quite come out to be right, right? And humans in general are not typically good at predicting the future. Uh, George Orwell in his book 1984, which he wrote about 50 years before that, did pretty well. And people credit him with being very, very accurate in his predictions. 
Um, and one person calculated that Orwell was 35% correct in all of his predictions, which is about as good as anybody does. But 35% is not a very good grade, is it? Not, not something you should probably strive for. Um, but what's amazing, and what I think we should sit up and take notice of, is that when it comes to the predictions that the Old Testament made, predictions that have already taken place, the Bible is 100% accurate all of them have taken place. And this is pretty clear evidence to me that the Bible is the inspired word of God, knowing that there's no way humans could have figured this out, because even the best of us might get 35% right. Um, but that the prophecies, the promises, the predictions that the Old Testament made about Jesus were correct. And most of them have already taken place. Some of them have yet to take place. Uh, one person that I read estimated that 5% of Bible prophecy is left unfulfilled. Another scholar estimated about 9%. Um, there seems to be enough left over for people to make a lot of wacky predictions. And the fun thing about New Year's time is this is when everybody gives it a shot, right? <laughs> new Year, new predictions. <laughs> but when it comes to the prophecies about the Old Testament, most of them were about Jesus, the large majority of them. And what we're going to see as we are going to be in Matthew chapter 1 today is that in the Christmas story, there were all these predictions, all these promises that were made about Jesus, hundreds, sometimes even thousands of years before. And then on the day that Jesus was born, many of them actually took place, actually happened. So find your way to Matthew chapter 1. Um, this is Matthew's account of the Christmas story. And as you open up to Matthew chapter 1, you're going to see something very interesting. Now, uh, how does Matthew begin his gospel? How does he begin the Christmas story here? A genealogy. A big list of names. Now, when you guys think of, you know, how to start a story, how to start a book, start a movie, you probably think of, like, an exciting hook to grab the audience's attention, right? Or... You know, in speeches, you try to, like, front load the funny stuff because you get your ha-has in, and then you get people's attention to you. You put the exciting stuff first to grab attention. And that's what Matthew did here, right? Genealogies, right? No, genealogies are not exciting to us today. Most of us look at a genealogy and we go, really? Like, just this list of names? These are the parts that we skip in the Bible, right? Unless we're looking for new baby names, we're like, yeah, we're just going to move on from it. But one of the things that we have to recognize is that these lists of names, these genealogies, are all throughout the Bible. They're everywhere. And they're there for a reason. The genealogies are included to make significant theological and spiritual statements, but also these are historical statements. These are basically pieces of evidence to root us in a time and a place and with people. Because any time, you know, Matthew or a gospel writer or someone in the Bible name drops a bunch of people, Okay, well, now we can look up and verify things about those people, when those people were alive, what they did, what other stories in the Bible we have about them, what other extra-biblical pieces of history we have about them. And so when Matthew was writing his gospel, was writing the story about Jesus, he started with a genealogy because he wanted to start with something that would prove the credibility of this story. And Matthew, writing to a Jewish people who were waiting for the Messiah, looking forward to the Messiah for years, 
he knew that if he was going to start with his genealogy, this is the best piece of evidence that he has to show that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be. He knew that this was solid evidence. You know, we have it pretty easy today when it comes to sharing the gospel with others because we have the whole New Testament. We have the gospels. And Paul and John and Peter wrote all these different letters about the theology and about things that Jesus did. But the early disciples had the Old Testament and their personal experience, and that's it. And so Matthew, he was using the material he had, the Old Testament. This is the most solid piece of evidence that I have. And he began it with this genealogy, this solid foundational piece of evidence that to us kind of looks like a boring little list of names. But I promise you, it's a lot more than just that. Because he included this for a very specific reason. You see, he says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Abraham. Then he goes on, and eventually he's going to get to Joseph, and he's going to get to Jesus. And this was really significant when it comes to proving Jesus as the Messiah, because the very first place that we ever see prophecy, or we ever see mention of this character, the Messiah, is in Genesis chapter 3, and it's this little phrase, or this little section of scripture in Genesis 3.15 that's referred to as the Proto-Evangelion. Have you heard that term before? Proto-Evangelion? You might have heard it by its more scholarly name, the peanut butter angelion, right? Because what this is, is this is the first mention of the Messiah. This is the first mention of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3. Um, and basically what has just happened is that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had just sinned. They'd just fallen. And now God is speaking to the serpent. And he's speaking to the serpent. He curses the serpent. And then he says this in Genesis 3, 15. He says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And this is the first idea we get of salvation, of Messiah, of God's plan for redemption in the future. And this is called the Proto-Evangelion because the word proto means first, evangelion means gospel. So this is essentially the first gospel. And basically God is saying that, okay, there's going to be this hatred and this fight between the offspring of the serpent, or those who do the will of the devil, and then the offspring of Eve, right? That it will eventually be Eve's offspring that crush the serpent. Or some of your versions might not have the word offspring, but they'll have seed. They'll have the, the seed of Eve, so to speak. And this really isn't that hard to figure out. It basically is saying that the devil will be defeated by a human, okay? Because who's the offspring of Eve? I mean, technically all of us. That's a pretty big list of people, not very specific. But this was kind of the first hint and the first basically prediction of how God is going to fix this problem of sin that has come into the world. And in the very beginning of the book, chapter 3, God says, I'm going to do it through a human, the offspring of Eve. This seems really subtle, but it's pretty significant to recognize that God's not going to send an angel. He's not going to send some spiritual being. It's going to be a human being, a descendant, an offspring, the seed of Eve or the woman, that God is going to do it through a woman with human flesh. Now, the thing with prophecies is it's not very impressive. 
if uh, it's just really vague. And if you're saying, well, a human's going to do this, it's like, okay, odds are in your favor pretty well, right? That's a big pool of options. But then Matthew, as he made his way through this list, he also had kind of told us why he gave us this genealogy in chapter 1. Because in verse 1, whose genealogy is this? He says, this is Jesus, the Messiah. And in the very beginning of the genealogy, he points out that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the son of David, and he's the son of Abraham. And so he's getting more specific here. He just name drops two seemingly random people out of the genealogy. Kind of mixed up the order there by putting these two guys, David and Abraham, in the front. And he didn't do that randomly. Um, He included Dave and Abe here at the very beginning because when the Old Testament talks about a person who is going to be the one to defeat the serpent, it makes it clear that they must not just be anybody, but must be a descendant of Abraham. Okay, that narrows things down a little bit. And they also have to be a descendant of David, narrowing the list down further. And it's at the end of the genealogy um, in verse 16, if you find your way down there, that Matthew shows that Jesus is a descendant of David. Because the Jews had a good understanding that, okay, the Messiah would be a descendant of Abraham. We know it's going to be a Jew, essentially, is what that's saying there. But also that the Messiah must be a descendant of David. David, the king of Israel. This is the royal family line, essentially. This is the line of kings. And it was understood that the Messiah would be the king, the king of the Jews. And Matthew included this for a pretty important reason. One, because what we're going to see is that Joseph, whose genealogy this is, and who it says there, and from there it's Joseph and then Jesus. Joseph wasn't Jesus' biological dad, was he? But he was his adoptive dad. And the Jews who care about the legality of family relationships, and especially when it comes to the royal line, They needed to see that Jesus was legally in line for the throne. And so if Joseph was Jesus' legal dad, then Jesus still meets that requirement as legally in line for the throne. He can be king. And this is what Matthew was showing here. And this was something that was really, really just common knowledge in this time. And Matthew just kind of flies through it and is pointing out that, okay, well, the Messiah must be from the family of Abraham. And he must be from the line of David. Because the Messiah was going to have to be king. Now where we see this in the Old Testament is in a bunch of different places. But one of the main places we see it is in Jeremiah. Now the prophet Jeremiah wrote this in 636 BC. 600 years before Jesus was born. And he said this. He said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Branch off the family tree. A king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. Which, if you know anything about that name, that's going to be the name Jesus. Um, But here, Jeremiah, 600 years before, is saying the Messiah will be a descendant of David. He will be from this royal line. And this actually was so central to the teaching of the Old Testament um, that after a while, they wouldn't even refer to the Messiah as the Messiah. They would just refer to him as the son of David. 
the prophet Amos, a bunch of the Psalms, whenever they're speaking of the Messiah, a lot of the times they'll just say the son of David because it was just common knowledge the Messiah would be from David's line. And all of this is wrapped up in this genealogy. All of this detail. And what we looked at in that uh, peanut butter and jelly on in Genesis 3 also actually includes a little bit more of the Christmas story as well. Because a lot of people point out that there's a very subtle prediction of the virgin birth in there, isn't there? That idea of the offspring of a woman, or of the woman, or the seed of the woman. Okay, now, you don't have to explain too much detail to me, but how are babies made? Usually it takes two to tango, right? And here, it just says, the offspring of the woman. What about the man? Well, in Jesus' case, what do we know about the Christmas story? It didn't take the man. That Jesus is technically the offspring of Eve, but not Adam. And this is really important, and Matthew's going to get into this. So in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, let's continue on. Let's continue reading the Christmas story. He says, This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary, which was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, which is typically good advice, and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Okay, now did you catch what it said in verse 22 through 23 there? All of this took place um, to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. And Matthew basically, I mean, he doesn't really cite his sources there because when something's common knowledge, you don't ask for proof. He's like, hey, this, this is in the Bible. You guys know that, right? because everybody essentially would have known this at this point. Um, but Matthew is assuming his readers know which prophet he's talking about, and then he gives the quote here. But Matthew is talking about Isaiah chapter 7. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 7 here. Isaiah, who had written in 733 B.C., um, and who had listed all these different prophecies, and all this stuff takes place in Isaiah chapter 7. If you read Isaiah chapter 7, it's like every single sentence is a different prediction and a different prophecy about when this king is going to die and when this nation is going to invade. And there's all these things that we can spend a lot of time on. And God is revealing a lot. But one of the most significant things that God is revealing here is that the Messiah is going to be born of a virgin. In verse 14 of Isaiah chapter 7, it says that therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. This was supposed to be a sign and evidence that when this happens, you know that this person is the Messiah because this doesn't typically happen. 
And Isaiah prophesied this 700 years before Jesus was born. He said the virgin will conceive and give birth to a child, and this is going to be the sign. Now, you might have heard it before. Um, it's a bit of a debate going around there. Some people like to point out that the word Isaiah used in this chapter um, for virgin will literally be translated as young maiden or young woman. And linguistically, there's a bit of a debate there because there are other places in which that word is used to describe just young woman. And so linguistically, there's a debate, but culturally and historically, there really isn't. Um, there just would not have been a young woman or a young maiden in Jewish culture who would have not been a virgin or at least not identifying as one. And Isaiah wrote this, you know, 700 years prior. And so between that time, we actually have a lot of different teachings of the Jewish rabbis and their understanding of what the Messiah would be like or the signs that were going to take place. And we can look these up. Um, you can look up um, different teachings from places like the Mishnah, which was written between 200 B.C. and 70 B.C. It's public domain, so it's all on the Internet. You can find it. And they taught for hundreds of years that the Messiah would be born of a virgin based on their interpretation of Isaiah 7. They just understood that. Hundreds of years before Christ, they're like, no, that's how it's going to be. So this wasn't like some late addition by Christians to try to fulfill this sign. This wasn't some just idea we threw in there. This was the Jewish understanding for a long, long time. <laughs> in fact, it's kind of interesting. Uh, there's a people group in the Middle East called the Druze, D-R-U-Z-E, um, who they're kind of an offshoot of Judaism. Uh, they believe a lot of the Old Testament, but they're still waiting and looking for the Messiah. So they're not Christians. They're still waiting for him. Um, and they hold to this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7 that the Messiah will be born of a virgin. Um, but they focus so intensely on the idea of being born of a virgin that they actually believe that to make it more miraculous, God is going to make the Messiah born of a virgin man. And so the Druze are waiting for that. And actually, they basically think it's going to be like a spontaneous birth from a man. And so they actually wear these big, like, baggy MC Hammer pants because they have this idea that just in case I give birth to the Messiah, I'm going to have room in my pants to catch him. <laughs> and this is essentially what they believe, that they're expecting this to happen. And so it's, it's really fascinating, kind of a scary idea. <laughs> but either way, uh, the Druze... They focus in on Isaiah's prophecy and this word for young woman so much and focus so much on the virgin part that they, they even throw out the idea of it needing to be a woman. <laughs> and so this idea that you would say, well, that word just meant young woman, the Druze would look at you like, well, you don't know anything about ancient Hebrew, do you? I mean, they're, they're not quite right in all their things, but nonetheless, the idea that it was just supposed to be a young woman, and we've twisted that, is just not there. And Jews and the people in that area know that to be true. And this is really important because Jesus had to be born of a virgin, right? Because was Jesus human or was he God? Good answer. Yes. Jesus was fully human, fully God, right? He was born from Mary, so he's biologically fully human. And in Hebrews chapter 2, which we're going to be in the book of Hebrews starting next week, by the way, um, it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, it explains how Jesus was fully human a bit and some of the reasons why. 
It says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, and he is able to help those who are being tempted. Okay, so because it was man who sinned, man is the one who needed help, right? Because humans with flesh are the ones who need a savior, not the angels or spiritual beings. Jesus became human, fully man. The offspring of Eve, right? The seed of the woman. Jesus was fully human. But he was also 100% fully God, right? Um, in Romans chapter 1, it talks about how physically, biologically, Jesus was a descendant of David. Um, but he goes on to say that Jesus was born of the Holy Spirit, the creator of all life, basically, put, put life into Mary. And there are numerous other places in the New Testament that explain this as well, right? That Jesus was fully God born of the Holy Spirit. So that's one of the reasons that the virgin birth is so important here. And one of the reasons that God did it this way and ensured that it would be Jesus fully God, not just any human, is because all humans, all of us, are born into sin, right? It's just something we inherit from our parents. It's just something we get. And it's just something we pass down to our children as well. It's really unfortunate. Right? Like, good parenting goes a really long ways, um, but good parenting does not prevent sin. Um, it doesn't present kids and people and humans from sin. Right? Even the best parents in the world, they don't have to teach their children how to lie or how to be self-centered. This is just something that us humans know how to do. We just inherit it. And some of you parents are nodding your heads because you know that it doesn't take long spending time around toddlers to see that they just know how to do these things, like lie and be self-centered, right? Somehow they just seem to figure it out. It's just in our nature because we inherit it from our parents because we are in the descendants and in the line of Adam. But Jesus, um, because of the virgin birth, was not born in to sin because Jesus was conceived with the Holy Spirit. And so he didn't inherit this sin from Adam. He was actually born without that. And this virgin birth is very important to show that. This is why Jesus had to be born without man's help, but through conception of the Holy Spirit. And this was promised years before, years before Christmas actually happened. And then Isaiah's prophecy that we read a bit ago, it includes that his name will also be Emmanuel. And this seems like just a funny thing. It's like, oh, well, I thought his name was Jesus. What's the point? Is this just some theological concept? But this is actually really important for pointing out that Jesus was fully God as well. Because the name Emmanuel means God with us, right? And this is what Joseph hears from the angel in chapter 1, verse 23, that he will be God with us. So if he's God with us, okay, well, he's not just a prophet with us. He's not just a teacher with us, right? He's not just this guy with good morals that we uh, can admire. He's God 
with us. And this is why Jesus said over and over again, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Or if you do not believe in me, then you will surely die in your sins. It was prophesied that the Messiah would be more than a prophet. The Messiah would be God with us, not just this teacher. And so all this is wrapped up in this little section. He's born of a virgin. He's fully man, but he's fully God. And he's God with us, not just a prophet, not just a teacher, not just this nice guy. God with us. This was prophesied hundreds of years earlier. Now, we just finished Matthew chapter 1. The Christmas story continues in chapter 2. Um, so flip the page. In Matthew chapter 2, he continues. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it was written by the prophet. And then they cited the prophecy here. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people of Israel. Which I do think is kind of funny that these foreign astrologers knew more about the Old Testament than Herod, who's supposed to be king of the Jews at this point. But kind of points out something about Herod. And then it continues. So Herod hears this. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over a place where the, over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts. They offered him gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, wonder why, they departed to their own country by another way. Okay. So, basically, Herod might not have known that the Messiah was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Uh, but it kind of looks like everybody else knew. Everybody else was supposed to know. And the reason that everyone was supposed to know that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem comes from Micah chapter 2. I mean, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which was written 500 years before Jesus' birth, it said, basically what the wise men quoted there, that this was written. Well, I guess not the wise men, but the uh, chief priests and scribes. You know, Herod said, hey, guys, uh, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? And they're like, oh, yeah. Bethlehem. Duh. Everybody knows that. Look at Micah 5.2. And that's what it says. And because of this, it was just kind of common knowledge that the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. He's supposed to be there. And the wise men knew it. They knew it. And I won't get into too much detail about who the wise men or the magi are. If you're interested in that, I would encourage you to look it up. It's really fascinating to figure it out. Or to figure out how exactly they knew what exactly was going on in the stars to do that? It's fascinating. But I think one of the main reasons that the Magi and the wise men were here in this story was to give credibility to it, right? To show that this wasn't just some weird Jewish idea. Uh, this wasn't just something that Christians just kind of made up in the future or later, but that it was predicted a long time before. And there were people in other countries 
other people groups, seeming to practice other weird religions or hobbies. I don't know if they just had a telescope for fun or whatnot. But there were all these other people on other parts of the world who were expecting this, who knew this was coming. But this was predicted a long time ago, and word had got out. There were rumors about this circulating around. And when the wise men showed up, they give credibility to the story. This wasn't just some new thing. These guys have been waiting for a long time, and they were able to figure it out a long ways away. Other people knew about it. And other people actually knew that they would be showing up as well. In that story, it mentioned that the, whole, the town was kind of troubled by the wise men showing up, right? It kind of caused a lot of chaos. One, because they were probably going around saying, where's the Messiah? But also, the Old Testament predicted that they would show up. And if you're looking for the Messiah, here's something that's going to happen. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 6 says this. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. And they shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. And so when all these guys show up with these gifts and seemingly with these camels, everyone in the town is going to be waking up a bit and wondering, oh, I know this from Isaiah chapter 60. The Messiah must be born. The nations knew about it. Isaiah predicted it. And it's all happening here. And then Matthew continues his account. Uh, verse 13 of chapter 2 here. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, and take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt, I call my son. And so again here, Matthew doesn't cite his source all very well. He just says, eh, you know, it says in the prophet this. And what he says there is, uh, out of Egypt I will call my son. And this comes from Hosea chapter 11. Uh, Hosea wrote this between 750 and 722 BC. And he literally wrote just that. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I call my son. And at first when you read the whole chapter... It seems like kind of a rough connection because the whole chapter of Isaiah seems to be speaking about Israel and the Exodus and a bunch of different things that took place. doesn't seem to be speaking about the Messiah. But Matthew, through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, is pointing out that this indeed was a messianic prophecy. This was a prediction about Jesus. And this is actually a really fun one, I think, because this actually gives us a whole new type of prophecy or a different kind that we aren't used to from the ones that we just looked at. Um, the other ones that we just looked at were statements. This is going to happen. This one, this prophecy from Hosea, is what's called typology, or it's essentially going to be like an example, a lived example that Jesus is going to be like. Because when you read that story, you're like, oh, well, Hosea chapter 11, Matthew, actually is about them, like the Exodus, and it's about Moses and them. So, you know, you're citing this wrong. But Matthew was pointing out one very important thing about the Messiah. That the Messiah, one, would be the true nation of Israel and would also be like Moses. 
That was something you'll see throughout the Old Testament. The Messiah will be like Moses, a prophet like Moses, or a type of Moses. That's where the typology comes from, that Jesus would be a type of Moses. And if you know anything about Moses' story, and when Moses was born, Moses was born during the first year of a new Pharaoh's reign, and this new Pharaoh saw that the Hebrew people were getting very large, they were having a lot of kids, and he was worried that they might get so large that they overthrow him or that he might lose power. He was worried he would no longer be king. And so he declared that all the, first, or all the sons born to these people would be put to death. And it records what happens with Moses' birth in Exodus chapter 2. It says that a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. So when Moses was born, he was immediately under attack. The Pharaoh wanted him dead, because the Pharaoh did not want to be overthrown. He wanted to stay as king. And so what did they do there in Egypt? They hid the baby. Well, what happened when Jesus was born? There was a king who was worried that some baby being born was going to overthrow him as king, so he wants to kill these babies, and then they fled to Egypt to hide him. Okay, are you with me? Do you see the connection here? This connection with Jesus as a type of Moses. His story is paralleling Moses here in an amazing way. That just as Jesus went to Egypt to be hidden, so too was Moses hidden there in Egypt. And then it continues on. Verse 16 of the Christmas story here. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that were in the region who were two years old or under. According to that time that had been ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. It's Jeremiah chapter 31, by the way. And it says this. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. But she refused to be comforted, because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So we see the parallel there with him and Moses, right? That when Jesus was born, he was immediately under attack. Right? This wicked king was trying to kill him and every other baby that was born at this time. And this is an event... Um, that would come to be called the Massacre of the Innocents. Um, it's not something that we typically talk about around Christmas time. Uh, we typically leave this infanticide part out of the Christmas story, right? We don't really have many carols about it, probably for good reason. Um, but this fulfilled what the prophet Jeremiah said, that God basically warned everyone that when the Messiah comes, the powers that be are not going to like it. They're not going to be happy. Uh, they will kill innocent babies to try to prevent it. God was also saying, this is going to be a sign to you. When this takes place, this is me putting my stamp of affirmation on the Messiah, that this is going to take place, and this will be a sign that the one who was born during this time will be the Messiah. And this is an event that, that 
For some time, historians kind of questioned. They questioned whether or not Herod put all these babies to death. And the reason they ended up questioning it is there isn't anything written outside of the Bible about it. Um, because basically there was a pope a while back who claimed that 144,000 children were killed. Um, and so ancient historians would have written about something that big. Um, but what real historians estimate is that, you know, Bethlehem at this time was a very small little place, basically a truck stop. And so it would have been more like 6 to 12 infants who were killed at that time. So pretty likely that historians would have just glossed over it. They would have just forgot about it. Pretty small little event. But what we do know about Herod, there's a lot written about him in history, is that this seems to fit with some of the character evidence that we know about him, actually. Um, Herod was put in power in Judea in 37 BC by Mark Anthony in Rome. And most historians say that he was basically put in Judea because he did something wrong somewhere else. Uh, Judea was where you get put if you're like not good anywhere else because it was a place that nobody wanted to rule over. Um, and he was just a terrible, nasty guy. Um, he had many wives throughout his life because he would get mad at them and he would kill them. And he had a lot of kids because anytime he would kill one of those wives, he would kill all the kids that he had with that wife. Um, Caesar Augustus in Rome said that it was safer to be Herod's pig than to be Herod's son. <laughs> That's the reputation he had. Yeah, not great. Um, he would basically get in a bad mood and then go on a spree, just like he did here. Uh, it was actually, Herod lived to be pretty old. He lived to be in his 70s, which was really old for those days. Um, but he was actually worried when he reached his 70s that no one would be sad when he passed away, that no one would mourn. And he was really upset by this. He really wanted people to mourn. And so what he did to ensure that people would be sad when he died is he actually imprisoned 100 of the most popular, most well-liked leaders in Judea, and he put them all in prison, and he gave the order that whenever he dies, all 100 of these guys get put to death as well. And that will ensure that the day Herod dies, they will be sad. They will mourn. <laughs> right? So, you know what happened? So when it came time, Herod died, these 100 guys were in jail, so they went into the jail where these 100 leaders were supposed to be put to death, and they let them all go. And so everybody ended up celebrating on the day that Herod died. <laughs> but either way, he was a pretty nasty guy, and this idea of him taking out all these babies seems to make sense with the character evidence that we see. Um, but either way, the main point of this prophecy was to show Jesus as this rejected hidden, then later received figure. Just like Moses, he was born under attack, so he had to be hidden. But eventually, he would be revealed, and he'd be received. And all this is wrapped up in there. And it's actually fascinating. You don't just see this in Moses' life. You see this in David's life as well, right? When uh, David's father was laying out his sons to be picked for king, who did he conveniently leave out? David. David was hidden because he was too young. And then once David became king, he was rejected, and Saul chased him around. But then eventually he'd become king. And Jesus is fulfilling all of this. He's fulfilling all this. And these are stories that were hundreds of years old, that were all fulfilled on Christmas. And this, frankly, this is just scratching the surface. We just finished Matthew's version of the Christmas story. Um, but Luke has an account as well. And Luke's account is full of of all these prophecies and full of all these things that God predicted hundreds of years before that we could go on for another 30 minutes for, but we won't today, don't worry. 
and keep you that long. But I hope this shows you just how much there is in the Christmas story, right? The story that we read every year. Same old boring story. In Luke and Matthew's account, it's actually just 900 total words. It's pretty small. And every year we go through it and we think like, yeah, 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 Christmas, we'll just fly through it. But I just hope that you realize how rich and how deep this story is. How much God was working throughout history to bring about Jesus being born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Because we're just scratching the surface. And especially when it comes to the things that were predicted about Jesus, the reality is that the majority of the predictions were about his adult life, about his ministry, about his death and his resurrection. This is just his birth. But there is so much more about Jesus. And the Old Testament is actually just a big story about him pointing to him. And we could spend our entire lives digging into these things, and we could spend our entire lives seeing Jesus revealed in these pages and in these seemingly weird, boring little lists of names. And I hope we do. I hope we recognize just the depth and the important message that we have here. And I hope that this also helps us to see that Jesus holds up to the test, that his claims to be the Messiah were true, and that his claims, or that our claims now, that he died and was raised from the dead, they hold up to the test as well. But as we look through history and as we look through the pages of Scripture, we see over and over these predictions coming true, which are kind of suspicious, because what we know about humans is that we don't predict the future very well. But on Christmas, we know all these things took place. And we know throughout the Bible, it's all about Jesus. And so as we move now, 364 days until the next Christmas, would we continually be reminded that it's all about Jesus? Um, It's easy to see that on Christmas when we see all these different things and we're reminded, well, Christmas is all about Jesus. Jesus is the reason for the season. But may that not just be what we think about around this time of year. May that be how we live our lives. May our lives also just be all about Jesus. May we be able to see him in every little detail, the boring little details of work, marriage, parenting, fun and play and travel. Jesus is working to reveal himself to us and to the world in all those places as well. And for us in the room who have chosen to follow him and who have chosen to put our whole life on this story and say that I'm going to rest on this story, then may we be a people who are also revealing that to others, that our lives would also just be a testament to who Jesus is, would be evidence that he is who we claim to be, that all these things that were predicted have changed us, and now we are all about Jesus, and we bring Jesus to the world. Does sound good? Sound like something that we are wanting to do? Go ahead. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Well, Father God, uh, we just thank you for your word. We just thank you um, for your deep revelation to us. Um, We just thank you for being a God who is so generous in showing us things that we can see to put our faith in. God, you have called us to to follow you in faith and and to take steps of faith that we cannot see, to take these blind leaps so often, but yet, God, we take a step back and we recognize that so much you have just made clear. 
that you have opened our eyes to see things that only you could have done. That you have worked through history, through the world, to bring everything together to just make it clear to us. So would you just continue to empower us to see that? Would you continue to highlight these things in our lives so that we may come to know you more? Would you just continue to reveal who your son is? And God, would you make us a people who speak this message to the world? For a people who reveal the character and the nature and the person of Christ to all those we come in contact with. Would you just give us the willingness to be your hands and feet to the world so that others may see you? And so Jesus, we love you. And as we come before your body and your blood today, we just thank you for becoming flesh. We thank you for becoming Emmanuel, God with us. We thank you that we get to experience life because of your death. And we know the end of the story. We know the story of Easter, even now as we just finished Christmas, and we're just so thankful for that. And so, Jesus, uh, we just turn to you and worship him. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So it's at this time um, that we are going to practice communion together. And so I'm going to invite you um, to come forward. We have two stations in the front, and we have one in the back as well. And so I'm going to invite you to go ahead and come and to grab um, the communion elements here, and then to return to your seats, and we'll take it together. on the night that Jesus was betrayed, sharing a Passover meal with his disciples, that he took bread and he broke it. He says, this is my body, broken for you. As often as you eat this, you do this in remembrance of me. So let's eat together. same Passover meal that Jesus took a cup of wine and he said this wine is my blood of the new covenant poured out for the redemption of sin drink this in remembrance of me so let's drink well Father God um, we just thank you Emmanuel, God with us, for Jesus made flesh, for his body broken for us, for his blood poured out to us, for us. God, we thank you that it's in his stripes we are healed, and that it's through the blood of the new covenant that we are made clean, we are made white as snow. And so God, we come before you, remembering the salvation that we have in Christ, 
with a posture of praise, a posture of thanksgiving. And God, we just turn to you in praise in this moment. And we just pray it's a sweet sound in your ear. As we hear people that you've given so much for, we just turn to you. And we give that back. We give that back to you in our breath, the breath in our lungs, the thoughts in our head, the words on our lips. And so, Jesus, we just praise you in this moment. It's in your name that we pray. Like a bride 
that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know that this love surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness so grace and peace, common ground. Merry Christmas. Now a happy new year. Would you go in peace? Have a wonderful week.